0: I am back with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin, thanks for joining me again.
1: Thanks so much for having me again.
0: So, um, let's see here. There, there, we have many things we want to talk about. I guess I'll just flag you have an article coming out in the Atlantic that we can't speak about yet because it's currently embargoed, as uh, things uh, occasionally are. And uh, so, we'll get to that next time. And uh, people will marvel at our restraint. Uh, in this okay. conversation,
1: <laughs> they already do. Not I'm sure touched... in each of our individual yeah. lives, we're
0: we are models of restraint. So, um, anyway, this uh, I look forward to that. But uh, that prompted us to talk about an older article that you wrote. Actually, not that old. Just it's in the December 2019 issue, which I had never read. I, I think I would heard echoes of how this had gone off like a a bomb in in the press, which is to say it was controversial for reasons that'll be obvious. But I had not read it, so you sent it to me last night. And uh, it's really an amazing piece. And the title is The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. Let's start with that. We've got a bunch of other things we want to talk about, but I want to take that at the top because it's just in addition to being an extraordinarily important social policy debate, and, and also just an extremely interesting ethical puzzle to reason through, the way we talk about abortion and the way we just reliably fail to reason about it honestly and ethically reveals more or less everything that's wrong with our politics. And and this is something you bring out in your essay in a a very vivid way. So what prompted you to write about abortion six months ago?
1: Well, abortion's always been on my mind as an important subject. My mom was a nurse in New York City in the 50s at Bellevue. Hospital and she sat with two girls, as she always called them, as they died from bad abortions. You know, an an abortion is it's the kind of thing that done correctly in a medical office by someone who knows what he or she is doing, very easy procedure to get right. Without those preconditions, it's an incredibly easy procedure to get wrong, principally in terms of sepsis. You know, a really severe, pervasive infection. That's, that's very, very lethal. And, and what made those infections even more lethal in the days of illegal abortion was that you had committed a crime. So as your temperature is rising degree by degree, and if you had, had any other kind of medical procedure, your family would have rushed you in to get medical care. These women couldn't do that. They knew that they had committed a crime, and the person who had performed the abortion would never help them. They were never to contact him or her again and so it was just a very 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 terrifying thing for young women and this was in the days that she was doing this work uh, just you know being an rn she wasn't really called to what we would now call i guess reproductive justice or or anything like that she was just a young young woman who would you know always wanted to be a nurse and and she was seeing that young girls right in front of her these two who died all they'd tried to do was have a private sexual life in some way, you know, could have been a forced sexual encounter, you know, she didn't know, we'll never know. But that the, in those days, the consequences of being single and pregnant were devastating. You would be thrown, if you were getting an education, that would be the end of that. If the person who may got you pregnant was known to your family or the community, you might be forced into a marriage with him and he into one with you. Him into one with you. And, you know, no matter how abusive and horrible you both might be to each other, that was the way things were handled. And so there was just this very terrible period of really high deaths that we, as a culture, we don't have a great m- much memory of them. They've kind of faded from the cultural memory. Someone, I'm 58 and my mother didn't have me till she was 36. So I've got a bank of cultural memories from my mother who's long since dead, that was really delving back into the 30s and into the 40s of what this really looked like when you had women desperately trying to end a pregnancy. So I'd always been interested in that on the one hand. Mm. But on the other hand, I really remember, because I remember when abortion was very much in the news in the years preceding Roe v. Wade, and I was a very small child. I mean, a young kid, I don't know what, 10 or something. And I would always hear my mother, who was super politically active and a very good woman, I would hear her saying to people, abortion, 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 we have to have it legal. And I really remember being in the backseat of the car and saying to my mom, well, what is abortion? And she sort of, my mother's MO up to any sexual question was to give you far too much information <laughs> so that you would never ask anything again. And so she kind of tried to think, how in the world can you translate this incredibly complicated situation to a child? And she said, well, it's when a woman is pregnant and she doesn't want to be pregnant, so they take the baby out and it doesn't live. And I'm like, my mom, when you're 10, your mom is just this perfect, beautiful, radiant goddess creature. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. And she's like, well, let's change the subject. But The reality has become more and more and more clear of that childlike intuition or sense, I should say. As sonography gets clearer and clearer and clearer, we're looking into, we're getting a view into something that's really hard to hold in our minds if we're in any way pro choice, which I am, which is that this is not a clump of cells from, I mean, someone like Ben Shapiro would say, we're just clumps of cells. But it is very recognizably human from an incredibly early state. Mm. And we had a quite interesting gender divide on this at the Atlantic because we were finding images of a a 12-week fetus. And all the women, many of the women who were, I think, to a woman, pro-choice, I think our whole office is, I don't know, I shouldn't be making claims. How do I know? Maybe somebody isn't pro-choice and doesn't feel comfortable to talk about that. So I shouldn't say that on anyone's behalf. But the women pro-choice that I know were saying, oh, wow, this is really hard to look at. The men were saying, this doesn't really move me. And mm-hmm. I don't see this being the compelling argument, just having this, this image. So that was really interesting as well. But I, I really thought ultimately that the reason we can't talk about abortion, and we'll probably never be able to is that it's one of those situations where the best argument of each side is a damn good argument. Right. And almost airtight. And the argument, the best argument of the pro life side, to me, it's not a religious argument because everyone has a different religion and everyone has a different set of beliefs. So if you, and a, religious beliefs aren't supposed to set public policy in America, but the, sonograms are incredibly powerful scientific fact. And you can't look away from them. And they've and these um, knowledge that really only medical people had who would attend to, say, very late-term miscarriages or, or any kind of miscarriage where you would have to be conducted in a hospital with a DNC and so forth, they kind of knew what you know, a 12-, 14-, 16-, 18-week fetus looked like. But even then, it's a bit desiccated with the time of a miscarriage and so forth. But we're all looking at it. And, And we have a very ambivalent idea about it because if the baby is wanted, everybody likes to run now to get one of these new 4D sonograms, which is like the first baby picture, those very beautiful, incredibly detailed sonograms that you can now get like in a in a mini mall, they'll set up shop for that. So that's the argument. The other side is women truly die from abortions. It'll be a different kind of death in the main if it ever becomes illegal again in America. A lot of things have changed. Access to antibiotics have changed, but it will be very regressive. It'll hit the poor much harder than the middle and upper class, socioeconomic upper and middle class. And all sorts of things happen in the lives of a woman, a life of a woman. You know, of course, there's issues of rape and, and abuse and all of that. But there's just also the fact, as I brought up in this piece with a piece of evidence, there's kind of a moment in some women's life where I just can't cope with this now. I just can't. I'm overwhelmed and the conditions in my life, whatever they are, I'm not speaking for myself, I'm speaking for a woman in this situation, whether it's the nature of my relationship, whether it's my fears about the future, whether it's that I finally got through some really horrible postpartum depressions with my first two or three, whether Mm -hmm. it's I need to get away from this man, and if I can get my kids to kindergarten age, I can go back to work. Whatever it is, there is such a world of entirely legitimate reasons to get some help and terminate this pregnancy. And if you don't have it legally, if you don't have it, as I say, you can have this procedure done so safely. You know, a little prophylactic antibiotic, I believe, goes, goes home with a lot of women just to completely ensure. And far from being told, As an illegal abortionist would say, the number one rule in every account you will ever see is never give my name to anyone and never contact me again. The opposite is true. If you have any temperature, if you have any discomfort, you're to call back and we have a 24-hour line. You know, they're not letting women die of sepsis. So this is the real conundrum. Both sides have an excellent argument. And where I've netted out is, I have accepted that in abortion, we lose the baby, but I'm not going to lose the woman too that's that's where I have netted out. Mm. but other people will net out differently, but I think it's incumbent on any of us who takes a public or private opinion on this in terms of counseling a friend or voting a certain way. I think we really need to think through the opposite side of our own position and see either what strengths it might have that we haven't acknowledged or what ways that our positions could be tailored to some of these absolutely true, very sad, desperate situations that both sides of the equation present us with.
0: Yeah. In your piece, what you also just did here is make it obvious that this is a ethically complicated situation, which is not what happens politically. The political ends of the spectrum treat abortion as though it were there was just a, a knockdown case against the other side, it was so trivial and so clear that it need not even be expressed, you know, so if you're religious, life begins at the moment of conception or abortion is murder, and we don't have to talk about why we're against murder, mm-hmm. and we can liken the the history of abortion here or anywhere else to the Holocaust or some other you know obvious atrocity and you know end of argument, not acknowledging much less dealing compassionately with. The ocean of suffering on the other side, for which abortion, in many cases, a very clear remedy. I mean, you just spelled out many of those cases: rape mm-hmm. or uh, relationship chaos that is just completely incompatible with bringing a, a new child into the world. And then, but from the other side, and this is where you know, well-educated liberal types have their own blind spot. The left has treated abortion as though it were simply a question of a woman's autonomy right without any other ethical implications and this is you know you might want to say i mean i think i probably would want to say that some of the the insensitivity here has been born of necessity it's just, its a reaction to the the dogmatism and authoritarianism of the right and the very real danger of tipping back into this awful history of, you know, women dying unnecessarily over botched abortions.
1: And by the way, Sam, I would just interject. We have no idea how many died because it was very rare. A doctor worked out with a family. It was such a shaming thing for Mm -hmm. a, a death certificate to say abortion and for that to be in the public record that there was, it would be called peritonitis. It would be the big thing that was in the 30s. You see it all over and over. It's interesting that people didn't catch on that, oh, she ate peach, tinned peaches, canned peaches, or a canned tuna fish, and there was botulism in that. Mm-hmm. And that's what killed her. So we will never really know how many women died uh, uh, over and above the huge number that we know about.
0: Yeah. So let's just go into how insane some of this history was for a second, because I in your article, which is, I recommend obviously everyone read, it's not very long, but it was full of detail that I found astonishing and for some reason had never encountered. And also you link to an article by Katha Pollitt from 1997, which contains some information that I had never come across. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Pollitt's article, she points out that, first of all, the the numbers of abortions that were performed under, you know, the medical supervision of the time was very high in the 19th century and up until the 20s, the time of truly sordid, dangerous, self-administered, you know, quote, back-alley abortions. I mean, that the peak of that was more in the 40s and 50s. And, I mean, appallingly, you have like the Journal of the American Medical Association recommending that hospitals not provide medical treatment to women until they had confessed Mm -hmm. fully to, you know, who had gotten them pregnant, who had performed the abortion. It was literally like just an official recommendation of a medical inquisition Mm -hmm. before you administered life-saving or potentially life-saving treatment to a woman who had shown up at the hospital, you know, at death's door. I mean, it's just completely insane, but the piece of history from your article that uh, I never knew was the role of lysol in all of this I mean, your article contains an old lysol ad, which is obviously i mean but before mm-hmm. I might want to to read your description of it you're you're describing this as just an obvious ad for you know self administered abortion through lysol, and I'm thinking okay there's no way the you know Caitlin's too deep into this topic. There's no way this really (laughs) is going to be, at minimum, it'll be susceptible to another interpretation here. Mm -hmm. But then you see the ad, and this is just madness. This is like some counterfactual history of the United States that I Mm -hmm. I never knew was possible. So just, anyway, describe the wonderful branding of, of Lysol we have now.
1: Well, the deal with Lysol was that, number one, it contained a chemical compound called, I think it's phenol, P-H-E-N-O-L. Very corrosive, excellent for cleaning. Came in uh, to, to just tie all the storylines together. It was big during cleaning hospitals during the Spanish flu because it was so powerful. And women would use Lysol and it was all but publicly stated explicitly in the ads, they, they couldn't explicitly state it, that douching with Lysol after sex would very much lower your chance of getting pregnant, which it, it did, you know, because some of that would trickle in through the cervix and it's a corrosive force. But if you were pregnant and you found a way to get Lysol into the womb, you would perforce kill the baby and anyways, or the, the fetus, whatever we want to I know it's loaded language either way, but so the ad shows it's a very beautiful piece of kind of mid-century uh, graphic art. A sort of middle-class looking white woman. Her hair is done. Her nails are done. She has a wedding ring on. She's sort of what we imagine when we think about, oh, the wonderful post-war American suburbs where middle-class white people were leading this kind of enchanted life. She's, a, she's like a June Cleaver type, younger than June, mm-hmm. but that kind of person. And her head is, behind her there's a calendar.
0: Which is a brilliant detail. I mean, it's, it's just, it's amazing how much information is conveyed in this photograph,
1: isn't it? I mean, American graphic art is—it's is, like the iconography of it is yeah. just incredible for yeah. the, the best of it. But so there's this calendar, and day after day is crossed off. And every woman in the world, certainly one who's in her childbearing years, knows what that means. That means you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for the period to get your period. And she has her, and believe me, to your many—I'm sure all of your listeners are younger than I am. Even in my lifetime, there, was, there were no, like, home pregnancy tests. If you, God forbid, thought you were pregnant, you had to wait and wait and wait and then go see a doctor. You waited as long as you could. And fortunately for me, I eventually got my period. But, but she has her head in her hands, and the copy is, I just can't face it again. Yeah. And that that's the headline. Like, yeah, and The headline, sorry.
0: graphically. Brilliant,
1: And that concept of, I can't face it. And it really, I first saw this, it was last May. I'd known about kind of the Lysol ads and I had really studied the famous actress, Margot Kidder, who was the Lois Lane in the first Superman movies Mm -hmm. and had a lot of, a very tragic life, maybe not unconnected to this. She wrote extensively about this abortion she had as a girl where they filled her womb with Lysol. And I thought, my God, what a hideous event. And then in May, when I saw this ad, I thought, my God, maybe it was a common event. And, you know, as terrible as the internet is, the things that it's great at are incredible. I was able to do the amount of research that in pre-internet days I would probably have given up on. You know, I, I, need, to, I need to search all the medical journals in North America, possibly England from this, you know, bling, 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 bling. there they are, New England Journal of Medicine something in Albany, you know, put your credit card in. And here was this incredible, terrible, untold tale of women having Lysol, this this absolutely poisonous, legitimately toxic fluid with this very pronounced smell filled into their uterus. And it would start, yes, it would kill the life of the Baby, fetus, embryo—the fetus by then—but it was would start shutting down the woman's organs. And the first case, this woman showed up; her urine was port wine colored. I mean, she was dying. She was in. when that was a typical way, women would show up. I don't know what's in the cathopis. I often don't agree with her, but I think on abortion, I'm sure we we end up at this. I know we end up at the same place, but. Women would show up in the absolute final stages of death by sepsis. They would be very often, my mother talked about this for the rest of her life, that those two girls were both interviewed by New York City homicide detectives. Young girls who had had a sexual experience. And both of them, the cops wanted the name of the person who'd done it. And she said both girls were so terrified they wouldn't give the name because that's what they'd been told endlessly by the person. You may never give my name something terrible will happen to you if you did so this light these lysol abortions they did quite often work but if they didn't the chance for it becoming systemic was huge and very very terrible deaths ensued because mm-hmm. of it and the finally the let's call them the products of conception the baby whatever when it came out the fetus would smell very strongly of lysol which is just, to me, just a horrifying element of the whole situation. And it's sort of where the notion of a sort of abortion being a murderous thing, you can sort of see where that comes from. But going back to history, I, I, I definitely know what you're mentioning, Katha, talking about the, the notion of a confession. Instead of giving your medical history before they treat you, you have to provide a confession. And nothing else, you know, if you go in and you've burned your hand on the stove. You don't have to confess anything before they'll treat you. You just say so they can give you the best treatment possible if you're awake. What happened? But the whole notion that you'll hear on the right or let me just say the anti-legal abortion group is that can you imagine that there's great anger that it came down to obviously a Supreme Court case and they'll always say could you imagine if the founding fathers had ever thought that their grand constitution would be used toward abortion? That is a fundamental ignorance about the nature of midwifery in the 17th and 18th century. It was completely normal for uh, a baby that was born with a birth defect that was a survivable birth defect, but the midwife would make the decision herself later when there was a physician, he would, and they would turn away from the woman and they would cover the nose and mouth and they would, you know, put that baby down to use that language. There was no sense of this sacred individual importance of every single baby that a woman who would have many of them over the course of her life was going to, was, was being considered. So I don't think it's historically accurate to think, I mean, they'd probably be very stunned by a lot of things about today, but the idea that some pregnancies didn't Go to term because a woman and a midwife got involved earlier on wouldn't shock them, not at all, not in the least.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's one thing you do in this piece, and uh, you do it at the end in a very arresting final paragraph, which I'll let people read, but you bring the experience of men into the picture in a way that it had never occurred to me to do. I mean, so, so we tend to talk about this as a problem of. The ethical problem, or the ethically interesting facts, are the woman's experience, how she got pregnant, and all of the, the chaos and suffering that may be attendant on that. You know, again, you know, rape being the obvious case, and, you know, all the reasons why she might have not to want to be pregnant or deliver a baby into this world, and the questions of autonomy over her body, and, you know, the intrusions of the state, and you know, the other people's apparent interests in, you know, what she can do with her life and, you know, all of that, right? So the nexus of all of this is the woman, and, you know, on the other side, the obvious fact of taking, uh, depending on how you think of it at what point in term, uh, the life of an innocent baby who could have been viable at a certain point, or is potentially viable and has its own interests. So that's the problem, but you bring the experience of men into this, and suddenly the reader understands that when you have women dying by the thousands which was uh, you know obviously the case due to illegal abortions many of these women have men in their lives you know husbands in many cases and they all, they have existing families right i mean the i just can't face it again moment is mm-hmm. by definition the story of a woman very likely married already having kids and so you take the point of view of the man who has delivered his critically ill wife almost certainly the mother of their existing children to a hospital where she dies and you know after that tragedy he simply has to go home and face raising the kids by himself right which is you can imagine you know in the 40s just how fully unequipped the average man would have felt doing that and that's part of this picture. I mean, the level of chaos introduced to the lives of men when this has gone wrong is something that, you know, literally I've never spent a second thinking about, but I mean, you bring it out so vividly here, and it's just, I mean, there's so much human suffering that awaits us if we imagine going back to anything like, as you say, you know, with 21st century medicine, a back alley is not likely to be a back alley, but if the people who want an absolute prohibition of abortion get what they want, it seems to me that no one is really thinking through the totalitarian horror required to truly prevent illegal mm-hmm. abortions. And, you know, you have doctors going to prison as murderers. You have people still resorting to procedures that wind up killing women unnecessarily and rendering children motherless. and this is not just a woman's issue. There are men who will suffer immensely because of this as well. And so it seems to me that almost no one on the side of prohibition is grappling with these facts. But then to, m- to make this interesting, you pivot again to the reality of the the image of the sonogram, which looks just like a baby, right? Yeah, it th- is a baby. It's, yeah.
1: There's something that, I don't know it's from the poets, I think, like calling out to like. That's us, you know. That is a human being that is recognizably a human being. And the more that we learn about DNA, the more that we understand that incredibly specific traits have already been determined in that infant, you know. I, you know, I've got one kid who could sit through. You know, two lectures at a fi- you know at a second grade and I had another kid who was like, boy, his, his foot would be tapping, you know, 10 minutes in because he's just a very active, lively person, always has been. All that, you know, maybe there's an artistic talent. That's settled. It's all in there. That's, you know, and we all know as parents that in the beginning, we think I will infuse my child with the perfect set of beliefs and they will replicate them. And then they come out and they are, they are actually their own person. And they have their own ideas about who they should be and how they should be. And all of that is extinguished in abortion. But I also say it's extinguished at almost exactly the same rate as miscarriage. And when someone has Hmm. a miscarriage, absolutely nobody goes up to her. I mean, I had one. I was very heartbroken. Nobody comes up to me and says, well, did you ever think about that child you lost and all the talents he had? Did you ever think about the pain the fetus must have gone through as it was, you know, rejected from you? People just comfort you and they help you and they counsel you and they tell you, don't worry, you'll have another baby. And so all of this language is is just very interesting to think about. But 20% of pregnancies end in a miscarriage and 20% end in abortion is our our best statistic. So, you know, Life is not easy to women in this whole world of mm-hmm. reproduction. It really isn't, and it never has been. And the idea that abortion is the product of she women, you know, horrible feminists, which hey, I hate them too. So you, you 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 got me there. But on the most part, but the idea that it was just to create a certain kind of callously lived sex life and it for some women it is, but far, far longer throughout all of human history has been women coping with, you know, all of human sexuality, which men don't really have to. And you mentioned this man in the, in the article, and one of my news flashes that will, like, my career will be evergreen if I just continually say this shocking piece of information that not all men are bastards, and a lot of men really love women, and if they're in a romantic relationship with a woman and over many years really love her and really care about her. And, you know, a lot of men, if they walked into the kitchen in the middle of the night and the wife had her head in her hands and she's sobbing and saying, I can't go, I can't face it again. A lot of men sit down and say, in the the male way that women tell us they hate, but is actually in some situations extremely good. They say, let me help you. Let me figure this out. Let me help you solve this problem. And, and it's our problem because, you know, we're both pregnant. I made you pregnant. You know, our, our, our you know, physical Congress made you, made you pregnant and so resulted in your being pregnant and our being in this situation. So it's something that can be handled in a very a moving way by men.
0: Yes, I, I want to bring up two things that you don't mention in the piece, and they seem to me to be relevant to the ethical question of, where one draws the line here, in terms of admitting that abortion is the the most ethical remedy to a, a non-optimal situation, all things considered, and so at the extremes, it seems to me that it's trivially easy to answer. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about a a merely fertilized egg, you know, day one, that's not a human being. You don't have to worry about the possibility of suffering. So using an IUD or anything that is essentially performing an abortion at the earliest possible stage, you know, the morning after pill, this is not an interesting ethical question, and no one's a murderer for doing those things. If a person thinks that, well, then that person has religious ideas which Mm -hmm. uh, make no sense, and they especially don't make sense in light of the fact that, as you pointed out, although, although not in these words, God is the most prolific abortionist of all.
1: I, I wouldn't say that that position has no sense, the religious position. It's certainly not my position, but I, I can certainly see an, an argument outside even of their, their religious faith that would say, this is us, this is the spark of us, this is the beginning of us, what we do to the least of us, et cetera. I mean, it's not my belief. It's not your belief, but I could see it being, I could see a situation in where it's not absurd. To, to me, it is a bit absurd. But, but anyways, I just I just have much more interest in, in, in... I'm always kind of interested that maybe people are right about things. So I always but, hold space that they're right about that, but I don't believe it at whatsoever.
0: Well, it's just you, you can create a situation where you have dozens of zygotes in a Petri dish, mm-hmm. and it becomes especially absurd. This is the you know, argument I made, I believe, in Letter to a Christian Nation. When you just think about the implications of genetic engineering I mean, literally every every time you scratch your nose, you're mm-hmm. engaged in a in a holocaust of potential human beings given the right manipulations mm
1: oh yeah
0: at that extreme you're everything's a potential human being practically you know mm-hmm, any any mm-hmm. human cell with a nucleus can be engineered to be a, a, another person who could be viable given right, the right, right, right you know developmental course so it's just a, it's one of the slippery slope arguments. But then on the other side you have, you know, a very, very late term quote abortion, which is indistinguishable from infanticide. And so it's somewhere between those extremes that where we have to talk about the ethics of abortion and where where one is tempted to see it as a, a remedy, a family planning, chaos averting remedy for people, not a very clear line between an easy decision and a hard one. Mm-hmm. And I'm tempted to look for this line in terms of the possible experience and suffering of the fetus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just neurologically speaking, developmentally speaking, you know, there are reasons to believe that the brain structures responsible for the experience of physical pain are developed. And here we're talking about, you know, brainstem structures, the reticular formation especially, and the thalamus. But these are subcortical structures, right? There's no reason to believe you need a cortex or even a cerebrum to feel pain, or at least there's good reason to believe that pain can be mediated before those structures are developed. Mm -hmm. This all begins to come together around 15 weeks in utero. So, and again, this this is not a matter of scientific certainty at this point that this is the moment where the lights could conceivably come on with respect to the experience of pain but before 15 weeks and after you know that's a an area where the structures we know mediate pain and pain responsive behavior have you know knit together and so there is something to Distinguish a first trimester from a, a second and third trimester. And certainly, when you get into the third trimester, you're talking about a being who has cerebral hemispheres that begin to show EEG synchrony, which is a kind of landmark that many people mm-hmm. are now associate with the possibility of consciousness. So, just neurologically speaking, I think you can make a good faith argument that before 15 weeks, there is reason to believe that a fetus can't feel pain or can't likely feel pain. And as you push that closer and closer to the moment of conception, you know, if we're talking about eight weeks or seven weeks or five weeks, then concerns about the suffering, I mean, you know, is whatever a, a sonogram image might do to you intuitively, the concerns about suffering are less and less reliably founded. And the fact that it looks like a baby. The concern shouldn't be that it has fingers and toes as much as whether it has a more fully developed brainstem and thalamus when you're talking about the prospect of this little being suffering or potentially suffering anything that could happen to it and therefore having interests that can be you know, destroyed by a decision someone makes and, and all of that. I'm not saying this completely exhausts you know, any ethical debate we might want to have about this, but a pretty clear bright line for me is whether or not there's something that it's like to be the aborted fetus subjectively. Well, this is speaking. what Jeremy
1: Bentham said, of course, about a t- terrible analogy, but animal suffering. He said the question isn't can they think, the question is can they suffer?
0: Yeah, which I agree with as far as it goes. And then the other piece here, <laughs> which I don't think you mentioned, is the reality of adoption. My first pass, you know, based on what I think I know about the developmental neur- neurology here is that after fifteen weeks, there should be a fair amount of pressure to see adoption as the remedy for not wanting to be a mom or what not what you know for the couple to not want to have this child. Why not bring this child into the world and give him or her to parents who can't have children of their own. And I don't see that I mean perhaps this this is a point that's often made in the abortion debate, I, but I, I don't see it discussed very often. I'm just wondering what your your response is to those two two points.
1: Well, I think that a lot of the pro-life and particularly I think the Christian pro-life movement has made is making a powerful move away from people or murderers because you know what for everybody who's ever said, Those women are murderers. You know what? Ask your mom. (laughs) Ask your sister. There's been a lot of abortions, I bet, in many of their families that they never knew about and that they would never look at that person as a murderer. So, that kind of facile, ugly, cruel language, they're kind of starting to realize is not useful. And they are turning to a very um, moving system where realizing that what a lot of young women really need is support and a pathway to an adoption. Because you and I, like we've been around a million years and we know everything, but when you're 16 and you're pregnant, you don't really know anything. You don't have any conception. And probably people are giving you the choice of an abortion or not to abort, and you can't imagine what to do next. And I've seen some of these videos, granted, the ones I've seen have been explicitly religious, although the support that the girls got were incredible. And the girls, young women, were absolutely helped to ha- make a decision that in the, at the time they feel really good about. And adoption now is much, much easier on birth mothers, obviously, because you can have a choice of a somewhat open adoption, you can get information, there can be an exchange. Typically what I notice is that birth moms really want to be involved in the beginning and then, you know, the first and second birthday, and then they kind of go on their way, partly because life gets busy, but because they see with their own two eyes that their child is okay. Their child is with a the family. Their child is loved. Their child is is well. And so they kind of, you know, that terrible, terrible haunting feeling that women had for just about forever of what happened to my child, that's, that's largely can be lessened, softened. But I would also say that in any way to put it glibly, not that you were, but that the pro-life often, well, she could just have that child adopted. That's a, another very profound emotional journey yeah, that can yeah. be with a woman the rest of her life, even though it's easier now than it was. And I, and I think that we have to accept that it's, it's something that girls and young women need a lot of help with, and the state will not give them that help. Right. And Planned Parenthood will choke the state out at any time it tries to give them that help, which is the very, I think, dark underside of what Planned Parenthood is involved in these days.
0: Okay. Well, I, I'm not going to say we've exhausted this topic. Okay but we have so many other things we want to talk about. and uh, We've, we've just,
1: exhausted one another on the topic. Yes, right. Yeah.
0: Just people should read your piece, and it's... Well,
1: that's always true. <laughs> What's it called? Can you say the name of it again? Or do you have show notes that people can go to or anything? The title changed. What is the title?
0: The title of your piece is The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate.
1: Okay, that was the final title. Okay, yeah. yes. Read it by all means.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so it's so like many things one might debate politically or political debate shows almost no awareness of the actual ethical terrain and is not at all well targeted to alleviating unnecessary human suffering.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We're scarcely human in how we talk about the most pressing human concerns. It's unbelievable. I mean, whether we're talking about this or nuclear proliferation or climate change, we barely make contact with the interesting ethical questions in our politics. That's what makes politics so dispiriting to so many of us. Mm-hmm. On that note, another ethical issue that leapt out of the uh, newspaper to me a couple days ago, this is now to the omnipresent COVID discussion. Did you see that Harvard and Princeton are laying people off? Harvard's endowment, I think, is $40 Princeton mm-hmm. is like $29 billion or something close to that. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, these two colleges have almost as much money as Apple and Google. Mm-hmm. And Harvard, I believe, even took some bailout money, right? They're laying people <laughs> off, and they took some millions of dollars. Oh, somehow. you mean
1: cafeteria workers? Is that what you're talking about?
0: And they're not laying off professors, but they're laying off, yeah, staff. Like-
1: oh, I know. I signed a petition about this a month ago. They started it right away. It is absolutely shocking for an organization as transparently leftist. This is why I hate the left, Sam. It's like I grew up, you know, things were clear. I was from a good lefty family of, you know, New York intellectuals who, you know, moved to Berkeley and that's where I was born. And for an organization as explicitly leftist as Harvard to let go of the lowest wage workers who depend the most heavily on check to check to check to let them go, what more do we need to close this hideous place down except for maybe some of its labs that are producing important science that is not somehow being, I don't know, manipulated and sent to China or being whatever, whatever that last guy was doing? I cannot imagine. And, and that's the problem, Sam, with these institutions is that, when we say we lost their way, it's a, it's a facile thing, but.
0: I mean, how is this not just a brand destroying scandal? It's like.
1: Because it's a luxury brand. It's not a college. It's Tiffany's. It's Van Cleef and Arpo's. It's people that I, I don't know. I literally don't know what they would have to do. Very honestly. I guess Donald Trump had that thing. And it turns out it's pretty much true that he could have shot a man on Fifth Avenue and be elected. I think that Harvard could do anything now. The anti-Semitism that is like being spilled over from that, oh, we're, you know, we're boycotting a particular political regime to, uh, no, this looks to me like, you know, the scourge of mankind, anti-Semitism that is wildly whipping through and there's nobody with the ball. Listen. Tenure had a very specific purpose. It wasn't that if you had a PhD, you should never have to worry about your next job. It was that college professors needed the absolute support that they could speak the truth, they could say the truth, they could have, you know, academic freedom, every kind of freedom, and the job wouldn't be cut off by the horrible sort of bougie conservative people who who run colleges and who pay into colleges. And they're silent. These sons of bitches are silent. And I think the first thing we should rip out of these people is tenure. They don't deserve it. They're not producing work that I think is so essential that 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 their tenure needs to be preserved in America. I, I it's sickening. It's absolutely repellent. It's repellent. It's repellent.
0: Yeah, although here the onus has to be on the administration, not on faculty. No, for these there's a,
1: I mean, honest to God, I was a school teacher at a humble school. It was no uh, Ivy League college. But I guess this is the lefty in me. If you're a professor and you don't, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, the college, you know, would, my father would support student strikes and, you know, we would have graduate seminars would be in my living room. I'd come home from second grade and there's all these like graduate students, like quarreling about James Joyce. But, if you are, especially if you're in the goddamn humanities <laughs> and you're, or philosophy, you're trying to figure out what's true. You're trying to figure out if there's any kind of morality that is in any way something that transcends religions or whatever. And you don't go immediately and stand up for these low-wage workers. W- what are you doing over there? You know, what are you doing? It's, it's disgusting. It's hideous. Boo Harvard and boo Princeton. That's all I have to say.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I, I got to imagine that there are many other colleges, more or less following the same path. But it just it makes no sense. I mean, the, the the ethical burden is on basically any company that can maintain its workforce as this you know economic tsunami advances on us. Any company that can should. This comes back to The point we made, I think, probably in our last podcast, just I think I asked you, you know, just about all the rich people who are getting rid of, you know, housekeepers and nannies because they're afraid to get infected for obvious reasons. If you're going to truly social distance, you know, you're letting everyone go. But then the question is, do you pay these people when they're no longer working for you? The answer is, of course you fucking do. Of course you
1: do, particularly the social class that can afford an at-home nanny as opposed to a daycare situation who can afford a house cleaner as opposed to doing it themselves. They are typically in the social class that isn't yet taking this huge hit that probably are able to work from home. And of course, it's, let me tell you something about the left, Sam. Maybe you don't need to know anymore, but let me just add this to it. So 18 years ago, I wrote a huge cover piece that just about got me, you know, murdered by feminists because I was saying this is a terrible, terrible thing that we professional class women have linked ourselves to the serfdom of other women and that that's a terrible thing. So I got, and we should absolutely be paying them properly. We should be understanding ourselves as employers. Yes, there's a friendly relationship. Yes, it's very close, but we have employers with all the responsibilities. So everybody argued back, oh, you're attacking the mothers, not the fathers. And I got kind of scared of them because they're scary people. And and they wanted to debate me a lot of places. And so I came up with this, this this kind of came to me on the fly. And I didn't think it was going to work, and it worked brilliantly. I told every single one of them that came at me, some of them very famous, I will debate you, but we're both going to submit to an independent arbiter our tax returns from the last five years that reveal that we have been appropriately paying into our domestic employees' social security Hmm. that they are going to depend on. And everybody disappeared. (laughs) Every, to a woman, they disappeared.
0: Yeah. Yeah but again to put a the finest possible point on this you have harvard sitting on 40 billion dollars right of assets mm-hmm. this is analogous to hearing that you know bill gates or jeff bezos or you know some fantastically wealthy person let his nannies and housekeepers go and is not paying them through mm-hmm. this crisis right it's just I just don't understand why this isn't a bigger and more damaging story than than it's been.
1: Because nothing will damage them. And people are going to wake up at some... And what I'm talking about when I was just talking about the deracination of these places is that for better or worse, they all grew out of a very specific mission that absolutely doesn't exist anymore. You know, they were training ministers. They were Christian institutions. They had for better and worse, a very specific mission. And now that mission is entirely gone, perhaps wisely, many, many regards, yes or no, but now you have huge institutions where they are absent the very purpose of their creation. So they are lost. They are entirely lost. And they are responsive to whatever, whatever the sheik or newly doctrinaire position politically, intellectually, academically. As I say, thank God they've got these science departments that are actually doing something. It's, yeah, very disappointing.
0: But I don't see how this is, this seems to articulate nobody's actual moral position, because so now we have a government that is just printing money, you know, dollars by the trillions to shore up the economy and to help people who are in desperate need of help. And we basically all agree, you know, Democrat and Republican, that this is a good idea, you know, a necessary idea. Obviously, we'll probably disagree about what to do in the aftermath of this. But you know, this is a fire that has to be put out. I think most people would, if given a, a second to think about it, agree that you shouldn't race to the trough and take some of this <laughs> money if you don't need it, right? And if you have $40 billion on hand, you probably don't need it. And if if you're firing your janitorial staff to save a little money while you're racing to the trough ahead of your neighbor who actually needs money, this can't be anyone's view of how Harvard should be behaving in this crisis. Well, it's
1: a breakdown of this is where I slightly disagreed with you when you were talking about, I certainly agree with you that this kind of neural understanding of the development of a pain response in a, in a baby, in a fetus, should be something that's really taken very seriously in the abortion discussion. But I think that idea of recognizing that human being that's in the womb, I think this is sort of part of this continuum where we have to stay connected to our humanity somehow. We yeah. have to say, even if we're pro-choice, yeah, that's a baby. You know, I understand that it's a baby that is enmeshed in a very, very, very complicated situation, but I am human, and I see that that's a baby, and I'm a human, and I can tell that $40 billion doesn't tell me that you let go of... I mean, they kept their ones, oh, how wonderful Harvard, as last I checked in on it, they had kept their union employees, I think, but the contracted ones that weren't Mm -hmm. in the union, I mean... Harvard, really? That's what you're going to do? <laughs> your least protected employees, your right. most fragile, economically fragile employees. You know, it's like I don't think Stephen Greenblatt's getting a cut in pay. Not that he should. I love. He's an old family friend. I adore Stephen Greenblatt. But I mean, the the faculty isn't facing anything, nor should they. No one should. When you have forty billion dollars, and it's a it's a global crisis so yeah know, we're in the I same mean,
0: you, you just do a little bit of math you realize that you could the entire economy could seize up and you could draw down your endowment by 10% and cover thousands upon thousands mm-hmm. of people for a year without any problem and notice what good that you know publicizing that if you want to be cynical about it publicize that and see what it does for your brand it's just so but they
1: don't have to do any that's the thing that's the the callousness of these people is when your brand is so iron plated and defended that nothing can hurt it, you don't have to be human anymore. You don't have to be moral anymore. Everything is optional.
0: Hmm. All right. So here's another conundrum, which hmm. it was based on you, uh, another Atlantic article that, that you didn't write, but which you, I saw you circulate on Twitter. And this was a, um, an article written by a cashier at Trader Joe's, mm-hmm. the, the market chain. I don't know if that's nationwide. We, we certainly have it on the West Coast. But the title was, you know, calling me a hero only makes you feel better. And there was one passage here that summarizes the point of view. Cashiers and shelf stockers and delivery truck drivers aren't heroes. They're victims. To call them heroes is to justify their exploitation. By praising blue-collar workers public service, the progressive consumer is assuaged of her cognitive dissonance. And I I must admit that this caught me right where I was standing because I, you know, I have I have been thinking about and and even referring to these critical and erstwhile uncelebrated necessary workers as heroes. This is this is critical infrastructure. These are the people who are actually, you know, getting us our food at the moment and these are not high prestige jobs like you know frontline doctors and surgeons mm-hmm. and healthcare workers are and so it's all of us have sort of had this epiphany that the frontline extends a lot further than we realized under conditions of pandemic and your Amazon stocker and your UPS driver and and you know especially the person who's checking people out in the, a supermarket at the moment these people are are taking inordinate risks for which they're poorly compensated and it's just amazing and so th- th- it felt good to have them go so far up in our esteem and to certainly want to compensate them better than they have been compensated and even to call them heroes and this article managed to smash many of us right where we were standing but i mean yes obviously it's true to say that many of these people wouldn't be working if they didn't have to, right? So this is, these are not people who signed up to be heroes. These are not Navy SEALs who knew exactly what they were getting into mm-hmm. and, and you know assumed the risk consciously and now are discharging what they think their duties are. These are people who need their jobs and can't get paid unless they work. Gosh. And another point made in this article is that you know, this person who you're calling a hero as she checks you out for your, oh, I forget what. A
1: frivolous, like face creams yeah, yeah, or face something. Cream it wasn't or, as you know, though like your beans and rice or anything.
0: Yeah, Face cream and brie or whatever. whatever <laughs>
1: right.
0: You know, this person would trade places with you in a minute, right? This is not a mm-hmm. hero. This is someone who's kind of screwed by our, our economy. I take that point, but still, I just feel like to feel the solidarity that we ne- and appreciation for people in these roles that we now all feel collectively. At least that feels appropriate to me. and i and I you know I would you know obviously we should improve the economics of all of this insofar as is in our power to do that. It's obviously in everyone's power right now to tip their delivery person especially well.
1: and you know who else and I have to now, my good, very lefty friend, Ed Redlick pointed this out to me, and I was like, that's a really good point. You can also tip the person at the cashier
0: mm-hmm. at
1: the at the cash register, you know. They're, they're not going to say, no, I don't need that. They understand they absolutely have earned that. So that's someone else you can help if you're in that situation. But the language of heroism, a strange analogy is, I think it was in World War II that the Department of Defense started calling women who had lost a child in the war a gold star mother, and that they would be these figures of great respect and had made the ultimate sacrifice. Of course, they had. And then I, it was kind of related to the women's movement, but it was during Vietnam that mothers started saying, you know what? I don't want the gold star. I want my son. You know, you've kind of manipulated. Not that, and I, and I totally, you know, when I see people today who have had, lost a child, parents, I completely, you know, I stand in awe of what their child sacrifice and of what they have endured and et cetera. <laughs> of course mm-hmm. I do. But there was a sense that there was a little bit of a manipulation of women then to say, well, you know, we're not going to leave you devastated. We're going to say you're were, you a hero too, in a way. And I think we have to be careful when we force heroism on someone, because it's expedient for us, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. The point that is obviously valid here is that to call these people heroes, and then think no more about their circumstance is Mm -hmm. to completely fail to make contact with their actual circumstance in which they really are victims of economic disparities and economic emergency mm-hmm. on their side, which is, which is all too real and something we need to figure out how to mitigate.
1: And I would just point out, because I somehow had missed in that piece that she was at Trader Joe's, which I must say is an excellent employer among our country's supermarkets. So I'm so, I'm so on her side, but I would say of the supermarkets, I'm surprised Trader Joe's hasn't. Provided more protective gear for their their employees.
0: Yeah, well, there's, there's so many aspects of this, but I think there was a period where they didn't want yeah checkout people to wear masks. It was a downer. Of, they thought yeah, it would scare. You you know, it was just, just a bummer to mm-hmm. be buying your your great chocolate almonds, mm-hmm. wha- whatever it is, from Trader Joe's.
1: Yeah, don't bring me down, Trader Joe's. You know, <laughs>
0: Confronted it's... with the the face mask of mortality. Yeah, but it just seems like these are also decisions that employers. Need to make and again, there are employers that are just going to go out of business, right so that they're everyone is triaging things, or many companies are having to triage things, but you know if you're an employer who can give people sick leave without going bankrupt, mm-hmm. well obviously you should be giving people sick leave because you don't want people coming to work sick and spreading this virus like you you have to be part of creating the incentive structure that's going to solve this problem, and I think you know many of these Market chains were not providing sick leave, or providing a few days of it, or it's been a mess. And now I'm sure we're going to discover that the billions and billions of dollars that are getting lapped up by anyone who can get to them first are being taken by, in many cases, people who don't need it, and people who need it are not getting the help they need. So right. we'll do a post mortem on mm. on the bailout, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of horror stories to reflect on.
1: But you know what? This is another thing that's changed in society, no matter where your politics are. You know, growing up in Berkeley, I always talk about it a lot because it's sort of an er source of what ended up getting so perverted. But in Berkeley, if you had found out that during some crisis, a grocery store had had exploited workers in some way, you would go to tremendous effort to not shop there. You would go to, I mean, I'm making this one up now because it's a grocery store, but I'm thinking of the Cesar Chavez boycotts. I mean, you would go to Oakland. You would go somewhere else. You would go somewhere that didn't have the brie that you liked, that maybe was even a little more expensive. You would really make a personal sacrifice to support the workers and to let that store know that they weren't going to get your business if they treated workers that way. And something has happened where everyone is too busy. Everyone needs the right products at the right time. It's... It's just very. Something's really shifted in the way that we kind of understand our personal connection to all these larger systems.
0: Again, bouncing from one ethical conundrum to another, the uh, Woody Allen mm. autobiography. Have you have you just? Uh, I know you've read it, but have you? Are you reviewing it? Is that? Yeah, I filed it
1: today. So okay. I think by the time your listeners are listening, it'll be out. Of- Review of the situation surrounding the publication and of the book itself.
0: Right. So, what are the uh, what are the ethics of around publication and uh, reading and reviewing this book? What has been? Uh, I haven't followed it closely. I, I can imagine the general shape of it. I, I, I saw that. I think Ronan Farrow did he leave his publisher over this or threatened yeah, to? Yeah,
1: it's. Probably a bit of an empty thread, and then I'm sure his big bestseller, which is a wonderful book, Catch and Kill, I'm sure he can't take that with him. But what happened was, well, a very, very quick review of this is that in 1990 and 1991, he was the subject of a a very, a two-part ugly situation where he, number one, was in a secret sexual relationship with his longtime girlfriend's oldest daughter, which she discovered, the girlfriend Mia Farrow, discovered in a hideous way. The girl was not underage. He wasn't her father in any respect. She had, her father, her adoptive father, was Andre Previn, one of Mia Farrow's previous husbands. And, and she wasn't underage. But the whole thing was incredibly disturbing and problematic because he'd known this girl since she was 10. He was the parent of other children who lived in that household.
0: He was viewed as her stepfather in some sense. He really
1: wasn't. I mean, he maybe was sort of a paterfamilias within the incredibly large Mia Farrow family. She is someone who has adopted Mm -hmm. many, many children over the course of her life, often from doing international adoptions and often older kids and often with severe special needs or some kind of special needs. But he was maybe kind of a paterfamilias to this group of kids, but he never lived with them. That was what was Mm -hmm. so chic and exciting about Woody and Mia, why they were the perfect 80s couple, because they truly had it all. She lived in what she wanted to live in, which was kind of the, the chaos and busyness and noise of a big Central Park West apartment full of kids and full of helpers for the kids and her exciting career with Woody Allen. And he lived in kind of Upper East Side penthouse splendor, which he'd always dreamed of as a Brooklyn kid with not much money
0: couldn't they actually see each other's buildings across the park?
1: Yeah, there was always this thing that they could, that he had a telescope and would wave goodnight to them. There was always, and everyone was like, oh, this is the ultimate, here's a woman having it all. Her all is all these kids and this career and this man, but, you know, he doesn't want the kids, so that's fine. She's just making it all happen. And then it turned out that there was this hideous thing had taken place. So the way that Mia Farrow discovered this is that she was just visiting or just over at Woody Allen's apartment, as she would be many times. And she's looked on the mantelpiece and she found this cache of erotic, explicit, pornographic photographs that he had taken of her daughter, Soon-Yi. And the betrayal and the anger and the rage was understandably enormous. And this story, somehow, I don't know how, we could imagine, but it, it kind of immediately was passed on to the tabloids to sort of show what a bastard Alan was. And he was a bastard. That was just a horrible thing to do. Out of all the girls in New York City, this is the, this is the one, and the one you've known since she was 10 and you've seen grown up. It, yeah. was, it was not illegal in any ways, but it was really ghastly. And, and then, it also had mm-hmm. creepy
0: echoes in his art, right? Then people went back and watched Manhattan with a different moral module installed in their brains and saw that it sort of prefigured his fascination with underage girls and it just seemed to tarnish several of his films
1: Mm, it didn't to me tarnish them i think that beautiful young girls in their teens are beautiful (laughs) and men are uh, appropriately attracted to them and appropriately don't engage with them as objects of romance or or you know it's the fall of fathers. Fathers used to protect girls from this. But anyways...
0: But when you have a, a film like Manhattan where you have a man who's inappropriately engaging with a an underage girl, and it really is, rather than being a moral problem within the context of the film, it really is just it's the source of comedy, ultimately. This is not a tragedy, and certainly you're not depicting human evil in, in any sense. He's a you're enjoying the, the adventures of a kind of antihero, but it's all just comedy and art and amusing and poignant in the end. But then you we discover that basically this is how Woody Allen is living, even in, in a more tawdry way, because, again, this is sort of, you know, an underage girl plucked from his own household.
1: Although she was an underage, not in any ways to defend this, but she was 22. Yeah.
0: But when did it start?
1: Well, nobody knows, but they both—they oh, both said okay. repeatedly. they have transformed
0: it in memory. Okay, I thought—I thought she was a teenager when this started.
1: Neither of them has ever said that, and the Pharaoh okay. family was a—you know—always been held out as a complete surprise to them. So, no. Okay. Well,
0: then I have uh, condemned him even further well, in my mind. There's
1: plenty—plenty plenty condemnable or contemptible maybe actions, but that I don't think was one of them. There that we know of, but. Okay. So this happened and it just became, well, well, going back to what you were saying about how like in Manhattan, which is, I would argue a great movie and one best picture, Hollywood operated for many years with a morals clause until the early fifties. Um, it started out without one in the twenties, pretty racy movies. Then the Hayes clause commission comes in and there's a morals clause and this falls in the 50s, and then the 60s and the 70s come along, and Hollywood has a very strange morality. As you know, Roman Polanski drugged and anally raped a 13-year-old girl, confessed, pled out to a lower crime, fled the country, and until about two years ago, Hollywood could not stop saying how wonderful he was and how great he was and how terrible it was that he had to leave the country and that his art was not, you know, being further to the extent it could have been. So Hollywood's always been very, very confused about sexual matters. (laughs) So this
0: is is another detail that I've just never been able to do the moral algebra on Polanski and understand how we got here. Obviously,
1: yeah, how we got where?
0: I mean, just how we got to the place where for most of my life, the thing to be, bemoaned is that here's this artistic genius is too big a word, but this brilliant director who can't come back to Los Angeles to claim an Oscar because he's got these charges hanging over his head. Whereas when you look at what it seems uncontroversial that he did, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I just don't know how you you rehabilitate his image. I mean, it's just, this is absolutely, you know, he's a, a sex criminal who got away with it and has managed to you know, live in Europe exactly as he's wanted to live, it's crazy that there's a diversity of opinion around you know, what Polanski did and what we should think of him.
1: I mean, it kind of explains why I think consent culture that, that rules kind of the way young women now think about sexuality and hookups, I think that's not as helpful as it could be. But you can see where it came from in that in the 70s, this kind of louche era in Hollywood, there was a notion that, yeah, man, don't be uptight. You know, sex is what it is. Sex is great. And men really ran Hollywood. And yeah, maybe that girl was a little too young. She was 13, you know. And, and then, I mean, the reason you can never understand the Woody Allen thing unless you like write about it for a million years and then kill yourself is that Mia Farrow, who's the mother of these children, who's angry at Woody Allen for his behavior with them, was the biggest supporter of Roman Polanski in the entire world. He had made her a star in Rosemary's Baby in 1968. Right, right. And when he was caught up in a libel, a totally unrelated libel scandal in 2006, Mia Farrow, who won't stop talking about her husband, her, you know, Woody, she flies to London and she's the child rapist's character reference. So the whole thing, Sam, wow. it's like you can't, this is why like it's a simple book review. Why it took me like three weeks to write it. It's just, you can't contain all the elements of this story. But to get back to what we do know, this was revealed, this hideous fact was revealed in 1991. A few months later, you know, everyone in Mia's family is furious at him. A few months later, he goes to visit the two youngest children that she has, one of whom is an adopted daughter named Dylan, the other of whom is Dylan, a, yeah. Dylan Farrow. Yeah. And the younger one, and another thing that makes it really confusing is that Mia Farrow has a long-standing habit of with some children changing their names many times. So I think hmm. Dylan was not originally Dylan, and who, the person the young man we know is Ronan Farrow, the you know Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who helped start me too. He was known as Satchel, and he was believed to be by Woody Allen and by the public, the son.
0: And, of, and by, by anyone with eyes, I should add.
1: Well, right. Well, he was held out as Woody Allen's son. And then many yeah. years later, it turns out, well, actually, he's maybe, wait for it, Frank Sinatra's son, because she was also married uh, to yeah. Frank Sinatra. So it's so confusing. But be that as yeah. it may, he goes out seven months or six months after this Sunnyi discovery, which is certainly in every way unsavory, but in no way illegal. And he's alone with some nannies and whatever and lots of kids. And Mia Farrow comes back from the grocery store, and it is—she says she was told by Dylan that he, in a child's vocabulary, sexually molested her in a, a private room at the house. And so— and
0: how how old is Dylan at this point?
1: Seven. She was seven. Hmm. And it became one of these—I follow these kind of cases a lot. I'm interested in them. And usually they're not— they're not made public in any way. I don't know why that custody case was not a closed courtroom, but it wasn't. And the poor child was interviewed endlessly and physically examined endlessly. And both parents had such deep financial pockets to keep it going. And ultimately, it, it, the case came down to what these cases always come down to. And the men's rights movement feels that it's just a unfair feminist takeover of custody courts. But it's a very understandable thing, which is that the case has always come down to the man says, that woman is crazy. And the woman says, that man is dangerous. And if you're a judge, wh- who are you going to send the kids back with? You know, If, if you're not going to send the kids back with a man who may well be dangerous. And so he never saw that child again, Dylan. And he had supervised visits with uh, with Ronan, and then those were, he gave them up because they were just so horrible. And life went on, and Hollywood did not punish him in any way for any of this. Maybe you could say Hollywood was right because the two investigative bodies that looked into all this the Yale New Haven child sexual abuse a group, and then a, a police force group that I think was based in New York, and these are groups that do not tend to side with fathers, they both fully exonerated him. But uh, there was just a sense that, uh, you know, so he's always said she was mad about Sun Yi. So she made this thing up and she manipulated the child's memory, which would certainly be the most hideous thing you could do to a child other than molesting the child. So he makes many, 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 many wonderful movies. And everybody, every actor and actress in Hollywood is clawing to get into these movies. It's the best thing that's ever happened to them. He's an incredible person in the American, you know, filmmaking world he shaped a lot of us in our sort of sense of what a movie could be and what things are cool and
0: so does he talk about both of these scandals in his book
1: does he the thing is he is an endlessly renewing font of spite and vengeance and the pharaoh side is an endlessly renewing font of anger and misjustice and deep hurt on the part of dylan Farrow. And Mm. all of these things live for them as vividly as if they had happened last year and not almost 30 years ago. Mm. And so, and then in this very interesting thing, what really got, so Me Too happened and people didn't really bring Woody Allen into it because Me Too in the beginning was just men who were doing things that we didn't know about, but then- Dylan published an op-ed saying, why is the Me Too movement sparing Woody Allen? Look at all the things that he did to me, and nobody ever believed me, and nobody ever stands with me, Mm. which wasn't quite right, because the courts believed her. He didn't get custody. Her mother believed her, which is always extremely important when a girl is abused, for her mother to believe her against the man. Millions of people believed her. It was Hollywood who I think believed her, but didn't really care. You know, that was Hollywood for you. And then all of a sudden, Hollywood realized, oh, he's got that social contagion about him. And so they dropped him, which was so weird because it's sort of saying, it's not as though there was new information. So for 30 years, you believed he sexually molested a seven-year-old and you were kind of okay with it. And then all of a sudden, when it could affect your career... He's on the out. So it's so that part of the book is awful and it's just bitter and rage filled. And the rest of the book is extremely interesting, worthwhile, important account of the filmmaking life and personal history of one of the sort of foundational artists of the, you know, 20th and early 21st century United States. So it's a complicated book. It's a complicating book. I thought it was an excellent book, minus this long section about the abuse, although I felt that although it kind of ran counter to his interests to write such an ugly part of the book, I thought it left a very revealing document. You get a sense of him as a very Mm. angry, bitter, weird guy who possibly could have done very well, have done something like this. And yet once that's over, you remember what a brilliant comic writer he is and what an intellect he is and What, how many great movies, you know, as I say in the piece, I really remember my dad and I had this thing. He wasn't a great father, but I would just say this to all fathers everywhere. You know, if you, if you do a couple of really good traditions with your kids, they really remember that I'm the proof. And I grew up in Berkeley and he and Mm -hmm. I would go, we kind of came online for our father once we could like read books that grownups read. And once we could see movies that grownups could see. And two or three times Mm -hmm. a year, we'd take the bus into San Francisco. He didn't drive. And, you know, we'd go in and we'd have lunch at Lefty O'Doul's. And he'd have a couple of martinis, which I'm sure sweetened the pot of the whole thing. And we'd go see a movie. Mm. And when I was about 11 or 12, the movie was Sleepers, which is not his greatest movie. And I didn't really like it. And I didn't really understand it. And then neither of us knew that there was going to be this scene of the orgasmatron. And so my dad was super Victorian around his daughters. was like, oh, my God, this is unbearable. But I felt like now I'm a Woody Allen person. Now I'm, mm. I'm a little bit cooler. I'm a little bit on the inside. And as I got older and as his movies got better, I just felt an incredible connection to them. And, and he means something to me. And I, I always think about Nabokov's phrase of the reader artist. Like, you're, as a reader, you're an artist too. As a viewer of a movie, you're an artist too. And these, play, these movies have a place, at least in my aesthetic imagination, that for someone to say, you have to remove all those from your aesthetic imagination. Well, it can't be done, and I wouldn't want it to do it, even though I think that he hmm. may have done this terrible thing and is probably finally paying the right price for it.
0: This is to answer an old, I think, pseudo question of whether mm-hmm. you can actually divorce the quality of the art from the character of the artist if you find out that you know Ezra Pound is an anti-semite or Celine was or you scratch the surface on on half of the great artists you're going to find something weird but that doesn't call into question the the power or aesthetic integrity of of their art and it might just add a, a layer of interesting mismatch between you know who you thought the creator was, and who, in fact, he or she turned out to be. You know, with more information. But to find out that Shakespeare was a serial killer would be incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't make you think Hamlet was less of a play, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's at least that's you see, the. Way, it would certainly you know, give you a new reading of Hamlet. Default. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd <laughs> you'd be tempted to to try to find you know some some leakage between mm-hmm. the what you now know about the artist into the art, but The place where this becomes a question for me is when actually the one place I've come up against this and just genuinely not know how I felt is in seeing my oldest daughter start to watch and enjoy the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. So there it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I get if you don't know anything about Bill Cosby and who he really was, I get that this is just kind of a classic comedy. And, you know, here's America's dad. And uh, this is just a a feel-good enterprise. But when you actually know the details of who Cosby Mm -hmm. is and was, there's something, I don't know, grotesque, because there's no distance or there's very little distance between who he is as an actor and who he's pretending to be as a person Mm -hmm. in the world and the way in which that pretense covered for a level of criminality that is you know was fairly shocking to everyone it's actually not an exaggeration to say that he may have been one of the most prolific rapists anyone can name so that's i don't know i mean do you have an intuition about that I, well I, i'm surprised I, you know, that I there
1: i didn't realize that there were i guess streaming services still showing the cosby show I yeah
0: no so... he has not been purged huh but and I, i'm not actually sure how i feel about I'm not either. that either it's like like he's it's like there's not Again, it's very clear to me in the case of a poet, right? Like the poet and the poetry, easily divorceable. But when you're talking about the person being the the star of a show where they're successfully conveying what a great dad they are on some level. yeah. And yet you actually know this person is a moral monster. I just think there's something... It's ethically confusing and and murky in a way that where it's not in these other clean cases where you can divorce art and artist.
1: Well, I think the reason, just imagining a child watching that show, the reason it's very troubling is that the show was real. although it was like an 8 o'clock p.m. show, it was a co-viewing show, as we now say. It was a show very much for children to watch with their parents, and this sense that it was this font of wonderful values. And, you know, here's this wonderful guy. And there were so many things about Bill Cosby, like white people would really, conservatives would love him because he would give these lectures about how young black men needed to dress a certain way to be taken seriously. And there was just a very complicated number of sort of signaling things that Bill Cosby was doing. I think it's yeah. I would agree with you that it's weird for a child. So what will you do? I know you always tell your kids the truth. Have you told her this truth or a version of it? Yeah. Well,
0: she she yeah there's some ver, a version of it. Yeah, a fair amount of it. I don't I don't I forget what sort of details have been withheld. But basically, she knows he was not at all a good guy. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't I don't think she, I'm not sure if she's still watching it. Frankly, I mean, she has so many things she's into now. But if she's not watching it now, it's it hasn't been that long since she watched the last episode with apparent pleasure. There was definitely a period where she was watching it and found it totally divorceable from what she was dimly aware of about his backstory. But I just felt like it wasn't my position to say you can't watch this. But
1: but here's a fatty Arbuckle movie. You'll love it. No, I mean you never know. Like exactly, what these right, exactly, people have yeah. done. Like you could you could like give her like something that we think is by like a absolute moral giant, and he could turn out to be some terrible person. But who knows? I absolutely understand the ambivalence that you would feel. Because the message is so... I'll put you on the phone with
0: Annika. You can negotiate for my ambivalence with Annika, who I think was less ambivalent. Oh, good.
1: That's where mothers come in.
0: So, okay, final topic, Mm -hmm. which we're really not going to do justice, because I found that I just couldn't watch the rest of it. But we've promised to talk about Tiger King, Mm. which captivated a nation, perhaps even a globe during the pandemic. But I found, so my experience watching Tiger King was, I watched the first episode, I thought this was hilarious and fascinating. I watched the second episode, I think, where it got obviously darker, and I thought, okay, well, this is just fascinating Mm -hmm. and a little bit less hilarious. And then I think, I can't remember if I got through the third and into the fourth episode, but at a certain point, I just began to feel polluted by and and somehow complicit in spectating upon obvious human misery. And it just seemed like a morbid pleasure to be extracting from the harming of people and the harming of big cats. So at a certain point, I just wasn't going back to Netflix to, to watch further episodes. So I have not seen all of Tiger King, but the thing that, and I, I'm, I'm happy to hear anything you you found in it that was valuable, but the thing that, that I genuinely feel like I learned, which I guess I could have anticipated, but I just never really thought about before, some of the most interesting facts were the the sacrifices people were making to work in these various big cat compounds people working 16-hour days, unpaid, sleeping in trailers that were, you know, rat and roach infested. I mean, just like the, the juxtaposition of squalor and their obvious enthusiasm for this whole project. And then you have this other trainer who's essentially running a sex cult where he's got women sleeping with him for the the opportunity to hang out with these big cats. (laughs)
1: Like, who knew? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because he's he's not the sort of guy you
0: The punchline for me is it is actually addictive to gain proximity to big cats, you know, to megafauna that can kill you. I gotta think the same thing would happen if these were grizzly bears or polar bears or anything else that you could apparently befriend all the while knowing at any moment it can kill you. So you can befriend and and dominate a tiger, right? Like the tiger has to obey you until it doesn't, until it just decides not to. What I began to get the sense of is that there's the psychology of this is totally unusual. Like this is a an experience that our brains have evolved not to have for hundreds of thousands and even millions of years. So for millions of years, you have hominids like ourselves knowing that the last thing you want to do is gain proximity to a tiger, Mm -hmm. right? And yet, so here you're in a cage with, with a dozen tigers who are sort of obeying you and fawning over you, but at any moment obviously can kill you and there's something so thrilling and dopamine driving about this that it's i just I, what i was seeing is a is basically just a, a gaggle of drug addicts yes. who are willing to sacrifice every normal pleasure and life circumstance to the experience of just getting up close to these these animals on an hourly basis
1: well these all of these characters the workers and the joe exotic were tragic figures you know it was I found the whole thing incredibly sad I did make it through to the end but yeah. there was in sort of that I, I can't believe this wasn't written about I think it was in the very first episode possibly the second where the main character Joe Exotic describes when his father found out that he Joe was gay and he was young he was still living at home and the father made some discovery I don't know a cache of pornography whatever he made this discovery and as soon as he did, he brought the boy to his mother and made the boy shake his hand, the father's hand, to promise that he would never attend the father's funeral when the father eventually died. Yeah. And I just thought, oh my detail. God, you know, yeah. you know? and it's, it's like, this is one of the places where I have to really thank the left. They have been entirely responsible for... You know, a world where at least Americans know that there's another way to be around all that. But that was just so traumatizing. And then Andrew Sullivan wrote an incredible, did you read his piece about Tiger King? You
0: know, I don't think so. It was
1: incredibly great, as I am a great admirer of his. He said that there's a, a confluence there of gay men in the South and meth. And the notion that the meth mm. is, is hooked so deeply into them. And, and you saw that one guy who was almost didn't have a tooth left in his head. And some of the partners yeah, yeah. to Joe were not gay men at all. That, that it was the, the desire for the meth that kept, that kept them in it. And so that, that whole thing that I didn't see as clearly as he did, I thought was incredibly sad. And then there's the off-camera yeah. suicide, yeah. but and then everything. But what really made me feel it was sad from the beginning is just what you're saying. You know that these these large, majestic, or you know, even if they weren't majestic, that there's incredible animal abuse. There's no way these drug addicts are able to take care of these animals properly. It sounds right that they probably are killing the adults once you know they have too many of them because it's the 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 kittens, so to speak, that people want to interact with, and. It seemed... yeah, well,
0: it's the kittens that people want to interact with. That was the real business, being able to yeah. pet tiger cubs. But it seemed clear to me that it was the adults that were hooking the people working there for no wages mm-hmm. or incredibly low wages. That was the thing that was just driving the, the cult-like behavior.
1: I'm sure it would give you, which, uh, you know, it's an interest if, you're, if your other, you know, job opportunities were unskilled labor in in very unglamorous or exciting ways. I'm sure this would be thrilling. It was very sad to see the classic learned helplessness of these animals that might have a moment of realizing, or, of kind of like mm. acting, you know, out on one of these people, but really seemed to believe that, that they weren't more powerful than the people because they had been raised in this certain sort of way to be, you know, totally, you know, treated by the humans as these, you know, helpless little creatures. I I just thought the whole thing was very sad. And then they just did another episode, which was they got a comedian, Joe McHale, and he kind of did this funny, hilarious, I guess, final episode, catching up with everybody and making everything funny. And I thought, wow, I am really missing the Tiger King boat, (laughs) because I just don't see this as comedic at all. And then, Mm. yeah. And I also thought, the animating premise of the whole, the whole, I don't know, just narratively, I would have brought up much earlier that the guy's in jail for, I don't know, it just seemed like by the time that it was over, it's like, so that's it? You know, you maybe that's why it was the perfect thing for the, the pandemic was that it was both lurid and, and, you know, kind of the folly of being alive and also this sort of tragic undertone or overtone to the whole thing.
0: It's very, Trump's America. Yeah, it's just as weird as weird can be. That the fact that the details of that were coming out in Tiger King of a country you just can't imagine is the same as you know many of the, th- the things we've spoken about. You know, is uh, Harvard mm-hmm. like how is Harvard <laughs> University <laughs> right. and Tiger they- <laughs> King in the same place? It doesn't make well, any sense. Well,
1: it also I think that these things serve a public purpose to the extent that you know you'll see these legitimate white supremacist people like in Charlottesville or whatever. You're like, okay, so this is a master race. Have you seen Tiger King? Like, I don't think that, you know, it's not all Mozart that, you know, you guys are sort of saying that that white skin gives you an allegiance to this great culture. Well, if that's your theory, it gives you an equal allegiance to these drug addicts that are abusing these large animals in a cruel way, especially sadistic way.
0: Well, Caitlin, on that happy note, it's as always, it's great to talk to you and... Good luck on um, releasing your next bombshell article. Okay. I, uh, I look forward to speaking with you about that when it pubs.
1: That sounds great. All right. Thanks for having me.